Hello and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. My name is Hussain. You can follow me at hkismani on twitter.com until the website explodes, in which case you can then follow me at the same app on Instagram, uh, where I will remind you at the top of the show, don't be weird. I'm Phoebe. You can follow me on Instagram at Phoebe underscore Rose underscore Holly. Uh, you can you can request to follow my Twitter if you want. I, it's, I don't think it's necessarily a good use of your time, um, but that's it, PRH Roy. Cool. Uh, just before we uh, introduce our guest, uh, this is a free episode. So thank you for tuning in and listening to this. If you are interested in hearing uh, bonus content, including what will be the part two of this episode, uh, you can subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 10K post podcast. Uh, five bucks a month uh you get lots of really cool content interviews movie reviews uh like really good conversations about all this like stuff in posting that we really like and is also really important um and it also goes into helping to sustain and fund this show so we really appreciate that um this week uh, as mentioned this is a uh, part one of two series that we've been meaning to do for a while um not only because there's a like a lot of content but uh, content in it but it also seems quite prescient in relation to the current state of situations generally, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, landlord posting. We're going to be talking about uh, housing um, and we're going to be talking about housing activism. And that's going to be the sexual, that's going to be the subject of this first part. And we are joined by someone who has really covered this space, both as a journalist and an activist. Uh, we're joined by uh, Rebecca Wilkes. Rebecca, how's it going? It's going good. Hello. Uh, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We really, we're, we're actually doing like a morning recording, um, you know, which is very new. It was very, it's very like uh, different for us. So I'm hoping we're a little, little bit more alert and awake, especially because it is so cold. I don't know about you guys, but in our place, it is so cold. Yeah, it's really cold. Um, and uh, I think that's like possibly a good place to start because... Like, you know, even I'm, I'm, I consider myself very lucky that even though it is very cold and we've got our heating off, like our place is like well insulated enough that we only sort of need to put on like a few sweaters and, you know, get the, get the like remote uh, radiator out as a treat sometimes. But for many, many people across this country, uh, and indeed like in other parts of uh, Europe as well, uh, it is very much like not the case. Uh, they are dealing with like really, really horrible housing conditions. Um, I have like written like, so part of the reason why we decided to do this episode now was because uh, I think earlier this month, an inquest found that toxic mold growth caused the death of a two-year-old boy, Awabi Shark, who died in December, 2020, following a cardiac arrest caused by respiratory problems. His father repeatedly raised this issue with Rochdale Borough Housing, but no action was taken. Ishak was just one of the many people in the country who have died or have gotten permanently sick due to bad housing conditions relating to cold, damp, fungal growth and other deficiencies in the private rented sector and the British property market as a whole. And despite uh, talk from the government about protecting renters and uh, making sure that uh, social housing and also private housing uh, was up to standard for uh, uh, people like private renters, very, very little has been done. And a recent investigation by the Observer newspaper in the UK found that in most of these cases, the tenant is actually even held liable for housing damages such as mold, whereas landlords have been given like an unprecedented level of protections uh, and rights to hold off any repairs that they deem to be unessential. Um, there have been very similar stories uh, to uh, to Ishaks like her that have come out recently. I just remembered one about, um, this was in relation to the Ukrainian refugees who came and were housed in uh, temporary accommodation. And many of them sort of reported that like they were living in really, really squalid conditions. And uh, part of like the housing that they were in was, you know, like some, in a lot, a lot of those houses, you had issues to do with like mold and damp and things that were just like genuinely life-threatening. Um, 
So this sort of feels like a really, really big problem. And it feels like part of what some uh, ag- like government agencies, NGOs have been referring to as a poly crisis. Uh, the idea that you are having multiple crises happening at the same time. So this includes like an extremely harsh winter, uh, really, really bad, pro- really, really bad housing conditions and the general cost of living crisis, meaning that um, people like who might have generally been, who might, who might have been able to kind of like, uh, not, I don't necessarily want to say be okay because that's not the case, but like basically they, because they can't keep the heating on, they are now sort of in a potentially much worse public health condition than they would have been maybe a couple of years ago. Um, Rebecca, you have like uh, reported on this space, but you've also like been an activist, um, in housing for like quite a while. And I wondered like whether you could sort of give listeners, people who may not live in the UK, like an overview of sort of like what's happening in terms of like, uh, both like the number of stories about tenants who are reporting, uh, squalid conditions in their homes, which seems to just sort of be accelerating, um, and how we've kind of got to this point. Um, I know that's like quite a big question. So, uh, please like, don't, you don't need to like, sort of like tell us everything, but perhaps like a snapshot for people who, have not sort of been keeping up to like keeping track with all this. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, that poly crisis, um, you mentioned, I think the sort of way it works is obviously you've got a cost of living crisis. People can't afford to put their heating on. And obviously the received wisdom in terms of things like damp mold, et cetera, is keep your heating on windows open. Obviously mm. that is also a recipe for absolutely bankrupting yourself you know, annihilating your finances um, if you are trying to actually be comfortable in your home. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, how we got to this point, I think you also pretty much summarized that in itself is that we have disproportionate um, protections for landlords and very, very threadbare uh, tenants' rights in this country. Mm. Um, uh, just going back to my notes now. In terms of the, the mold and damp issue, I went to um, a, a landlord investment uh, conference um, in September, which is where they sort of all meet to get together to talk about the business of, of being a landlord, which is which is exciting. Um, <laughs> and cutting off this repair complaints of the past was was pretty much one of the, the dominant things that they talked about. It was all about how to uh, stop your tenants from reporting disrepair. And when they do report disrepair, how to get out of doing it because, you know, you can prove that it's the fault of their lifestyle, as they mm. call it, which was obviously yeah. a huge thing during that at that inquest with the with the mould that, that ended up uh, damaging the health of that little boy and, and resulting in his death. Um, so... One of the people at that investment show is a company called ICO. And one of the products that they um, were promoting to landlords at this show was uh, tamper-proof sensors that would constantly monitor the the temperature and the humidity levels in in different rooms of the house. Um, The landlord would know if the, or this was the claim anyway, the landlord would know if the tenant tried to remove these sensors. And basically the purpose of it was to say, Mm. if, if a tenant comes to you, um with with complaints about mold or, or damp you can then say to them well i could see that the the temperature was low for you know say four hours on this date and you let the humidity get too high therefore this is a lifestyle problem and we need to right. um, 
adjust the way that you live before we, we address this problem. So that's very much kind of the tenor mm-hmm. of, of how landlords are thinking at the moment. It's all mm-hmm. about it's all about sort of using surveillance to kind of get out of of doing those repairs. But I think in terms of housing law and, and, and policy and stuff, I mean in in Wales uh, we've got a, a fitness for human habitation uh, law that's coming in. That was passed originally in 2016. It's coming into force in December this year, so it's about six years late. Um, really very little explanation for why it's taken so long, but that kind of tells you how we got here is that, you know, passing anything that resembles, um, that comes close to resembling protections for renters is like pulling teeth in this country. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a different set of laws that are, are sort of being drafted across the border in England um, at the moment. And I mean, potentially it'll move quicker, but I am um, very skeptical of sort of the the conservative government in, in Westminster, you know, how how sort of jazzed they are to, to get this stuff on the books because, you know, we've got Welsh Labour in, in Wales and it took them six years to actually mm. enforce things. And even then, the, you know, they're only enforcing it for new contracts. Anyone who's who's already on a contract won't be protected for quite some time. I so, see. yeah. Sure. Yeah. I hope that wasn't too much of a ramble. But, yeah, that's that's it in a kind of a nutshell. No, no, that's not, that's not a ramble at all. I mean... I um I remember that there was there was an attempt in England to get a uh fitness for human habitation uh, uh law across the sort of across the line um and that was quite some time ago and it was um voted down um and that was I think that was in sort of 2015 or 2016. It was all around that kind of time. And it came up again. Um, it came up again around Grenfell, which is obviously not, it was obviously not the same thing because that is a, that was a uh, an issue of uh, council um, and company uh, corruption. And that was also an issue of social murder. Um, and the Fitness for Human Habitation Bill was specifically targeted at private landlords, and obviously at the time there was quite a lot of um, quite a lot of information floating around about the percentage of members of Parliament who are also private landlords, and for some reason nobody has ever suggested that this might be a really quite significant conflict of interest, and if. And if uh, if MPs simply must have second jobs, then there should be some jobs that they are automatically automatically barred from because having a financial interest in those jobs, um, I have put inverts around that. Um, having a pub, having a financial interest means that you cannot possibly be trusted to uh, vote with the interests of your constituents, a vast number of whom will be renters in mind this seems like this seems like a very to me very straightforward case of conflict of interest and corruption yeah that's absolutely right and i think probably Mm. that's that's part of why it was such a slow moving process in wales as well because um a while back we looked at the percentage of um senate members in wales they're the 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 lawmakers over here in uh, cardiff bay we looked at the amount of them that had cleared uh, rental properties in the last Senate term. And, you know, it was a lot of them. It was a lot of Labour. It was a lot of Plaid Cymru, which is, you know, notionally the left-wing party in Wales. 
I think it was like 33%. Um, yeah, and it, it, in part as well, it's you have people who are in power and are not willing to kind of see that that influences their work. I remember there was a there was a tweet by um, Lucy Powell, I believe, in, in UK Labour, where she was sort of like, I'm not a landlord, I just have a lodger. And, and that to me kind of signified something else because it's sort of a lodger is a is a is your tenant but with less rights than a formal mm. tenant so mm. you know if this is this is sort of the the thing at play here there's this sort of we've got we've got elected representatives that have a very you know obvious financial interest in you know maintaining the private rental sector as is um mm. and we have you know, extraordinarily weak protections mm. as a result. Um, and then we also have, you know, landlords that are at the same time as sort of being quite willing to exercise the the disproportionate power that they have, you know, casually evicting people or, um, you know, denying repay claims because you've made a personal judgment about, you know, this person's lifestyle isn't, isn't quite what you think it should be to maintain your property so therefore you're not going to you know get someone in to look at the mold while at the same time kind of denying that um that imbalance of power Mm. and that's yeah you know we're gonna i know in this in the second part you said we're going to be going on to talk more specifically about landlord posting but i think that really sort of embodies the spirit of the landlord poster is Mm -hmm. the the sort of denying the the disproportionate power you wield while also very casually and very openly you know demonstrating that you're exercising that disproportionate power over people's lives yeah one thing i was also no sorry Hussein, go ahead no please go because i'm still like forming my thing i i I mean i suppose i suppose the one and it is such a minimal thing that you can say about people who have lodges rather than people who are either buy to let landlords or have a spare house um or however they prefer to uh prefer to think of it is that at, at least they are still they are living in this property and they are not um and they're not just they're not depleting the housing stock it's obviously not it's obviously not a good not a good balance of it's obviously not a good balance of power and obviously lodgers should have um, should have significantly more rights because I think I think at the moment if you've got someone living in your spare room you can just chuck them out and they have absolutely no legal recourse whatsoever and presumably I suspect that lodgers are also not protected by the um, by the Deposit Protection Act um, so I think that if you because the I think think that these contracts tend to be done very much on a kind of informal basis so i don't mm. think there's a legal requirement if you take a deposit from a lodger to um i don't think there is a legal requirement to no, put that in the deposit short tenant yeah yeah to put that in the deposit protection protection scheme and the deposit protection scheme is i think it's the one actual formal legal right that that mm. tenants actually have actually seem to have or certainly one of very few so this is not by any by any means a kind of a yeah but is that maybe all right it's more kind it's more sort of the difference between having like all of your toes cut off and then having like both of your legs mm. broken in terms of mm. um but just want just like just wondered if that's a kind of 
worth bringing up. Maybe it's not worth bringing up. Maybe the honestly, maybe the maybe the difference is sort of <laughs> is sort of so is sort of so um, so irrelevant. But um, one of the things that I actually wanted to talk to you about um, from the perspective of someone who's been doing um, doing a lot of of uh, tenancy organising is, and because this is something that has actually caught like caused a lot of people I know even people who have been in the private rental sector for a very, very long time, it's caused them a little bit of a start, which is that it's it's always been very, very, very bad. I think it'd be fun if we could have a little kind of uh, a little kind of sharing, sharing stories of, of landlord behavior sort of towards the end. Um, but particularly in terms of how much it costs to rent somewhere, it has, it's gone not just a bit mental it's now turned into a kind of unsustainable level of level of mental technical term um mm. and so i was wondering if you could tell us like a bit more about that and how that's like intersecting with um with tenancy organize tenant sorry excuse me with tenant organizing yeah um absolutely i think it's it's not even just the price also because that is obviously the main thing, but you've also got now, because again, you know, becoming a landlord is a, is an investment in the same way as anything else is. But I think the difference with becoming a landlord is you, again, you just have so, so many sort of extraordinary, extraordinarily sort of robust ways of assuring a return on your investment. Mm. And I think one of those things is, you know, guarantors, guarantor schemes where like, not only are you asking someone for a deposit and a first month's rent up front, you know, often, you know, as as rents are rising, these are huge amounts of money. Mm. But also if you think that someone is not going to be 100% guaranteed to always give you the, the money that you, you would like from your investment, you can, mm. you have them over a barrel in terms of a guarantor, which means they have to have a a homeowner based in the UK that can guarantee that they'll pay the rent if the tenant cannot. Mm. Um, obviously, this causes quite a problem. If, you know, if you're someone who is estranged from your family, we we see it a lot with because um, we here in Wales in the in the Cardiff Acorn branch, we do a lot of work with a, a group called Trans Aid Cymru. Um, they are a mutual aid group that helps out trans and non-binary people in in Wales and they get a lot of um they get a lot of requests for help because obviously sometimes if you're a trans person and you're living openly as a trans person your family may not be in touch with you anymore you know you're you're vulnerable in that sense and the same goes you know um you know if you're a victim of of abuse in the family or, or things like that there's, there's any number of reasons why you might not be in touch with your family mm. and therefore you won't have a guarantor to put down which means that you've now got um uh, it, in this sort of vacuum of support for people, you've got a, a guarantor provider service that's sprung up where people are being charged, you know, hundreds to thousands for a company to notionally say they'll be a guarantor. Mm-hmm. How how that actually works in practice, I don't know because they also these guarantor companies don't seem to guarantee to pay the rent and they sort of make clear that they'll assist in in uh, debt collection procedures against you so it's a very sort of 
gnarled and thorny kind of um, environment to exist as a renter at the moment because, mm. you know, you're, you haven't got protections, you're paying most of your income um, in rent and also to actually even get, you know, sometimes people are having to like bid to view a property. Mm. You know, it's it's a level of competition that's really sort of unprecedented. And in terms of housing activism, that's between uh, guarantors and um, rent rises. That's, you know, the bulk of, of what we see. In, and um, like at the moment, I'm coordinating a case in Cardiff. It's not a residential property, but it's um, an independently run cafe. The, the rent has been put up 50% because the the landlords in question own a lot of property across the city and they have probably quite astutely recognized that if they can get away with pushing up rent at one of their properties, they can then start doing it because it's then the market has decided that the property is worth more. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and again, when I went to that investment show um, in September, that was very much the, the tenor of, of, of what people were saying was, you know, there are areas of the city that, you know, historically have had lower rents, but as rents are rising everywhere else, you can kind of, you know, you can push the prices up and, you know, there's, there's, there's money to be made in crises, I guess. Um, yeah, that doesn't, that, that is not surprising, but it is still awful to hear. Um, because yeah, you are like, one of the things I was actually going to like thinking about while kind of doing the prep notes for the, this episode series was, um, and again, I don't know like how true this is, but it's kind of that sort of impulse of like the property market and like kind of the, the landlord sort of becoming, um, the, the landlord sort of seeing their job is just sort of like responding to like this kind of very inflated, uh, overvalued like property market versus this sort of idea that landlords like to kind of think of themselves as sort of doing is, you know, the whole like Thatcherite vision of like, oh, you know, this is our property and we're like the custodians of it. And like, you know, we have to like look after it and all that stuff. And so they kind of view the tenants as being, but they view the tenants as being like inconveniences in the sense of like they just, their sort of existence in this property, like disrupts the idea that they like to have of themselves as being custodians. But like in reality, like their actions sort of speak to the idea that ultimately they view property as these kind of like kind of constantly inflating assets. So it doesn't really matter how it doesn't really matter like what condition you kind of keep them in. It doesn't really matter how long you let them deteriorate because like also and you know we've all seen this especially like if you've lived or like been in London, like properties that are kept really like in really, really bad states. Mm. Um but you know are also extremely like that are also valued at like 300, 400,000 pounds, right? Um and so like I don't know whether there's like what, whether you kind of see, or is it kind of fair to say that like for the landlord, there's a vision that they like to have, which is sort of like rooted in the kind of like Thatcherite ideal of being, you know, these sort of uh, like responsible citizens. But in reality, like their incentives are purely like market driven. And the reason why things have seemingly have gotten so much worse is because you're also working within a property market that like constantly seems to sort of be inflating despite like all reasonable like observations suggesting that like it shouldn't be um yeah that's actually really really interesting um because it's something i've i was thinking about as well because we do have this sort of thing of you know landlords particularly when they're posting us if you see that you know they're talking about how they provide housing and you know um there's always this sort of like um scare quotes talk of like you know 
exiting the market. Landlords are exiting the market. You can't yeah. make it too unattractive for landlords to 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 sort of uh, invest in property because then yeah they'll pack their the, bags up and move elsewhere. Pack their bags and leaves, and of course, then the house that they that they previously <laughs> owned just disappears off the map. It, it no longer exists. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think part of that is also enabled by the fact, you know, as you say, statutory policies and, you know, things like right to buy and stuff, you know, as social housing has become depleted and you have governments either that are ideologically very Thatcherite or in, in the case of, you know, here in Wales, you have a Labour government that's very like neoliberal in, in character, but likes to think that it isn't. And because the received wisdom is that, you know, landlords provide property um, as social housing stock sort of becomes depleted and the slowdown in social housing building has, uh, has you know, continued apace, you have governments that sort of make decisions in order to keep landlords on side, reasoning that they, they need those landlords to provide housing where councils cannot. Mm. Um, mm. And there's that, at least, again, I think in Wales and probably, you know, up in, up in Scotland as well, SNP, these sort of governments that like to think that, they're not sort of ideologically uh, Thatcherite, but at the same time, they're sort of overbarrel in terms of you know they completely accept this sort of the logic about landlords providing housing and they that they they rely on landlords to to have mm. a stock of housing when when they can't provide that. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 really interesting. I was going to say something else, but it's completely gone out of my head. <laughs> That's okay. We can we can we can come back to it. I think what I think what you say about the received wisdom about landlords providing housing is just I think that's really really important, and I think that's what um, any kind of housing activism just has to keep lasering in on, which is that they don't provide housing. They are a parasitic in- interference layer between people and housing, and. I know that that seems like an obvious point, but it's a point which both uh, both the political and media class seem to be utterly allergic to making. Um, and and as and as you say, as social housing stock uh, is um, is depleted, and um, this was and this was certainly something which was um, a huge issue uh, in the after in the aftermath of aftermath of Thatcher because. Because right to buy was um, was a bribe. It was a way of, you know, it's a way of it was a way of separating, um, separating and dividing and dividing and dividing and ruling working class people into people who were able to buy their council homes and people who were not able to buy their council homes. And for some reason, I say for some reason in a kind of pretend naive like, why could this possibly have been? But it was not deemed to be any kind of priority to replace the replace the houses that had been bought through right to buy and that and the house and the social housing stock has never recovered since and it is very much not a new policy and it's not been a new policy since the kind of mid 90s the idea of taking uh, of taking a sector which should be which should be managed and should be run by the government and uh, devolving it out to the devolving out to the private sector but under normal circumstances this is done in a very shady very bloated very corrupt way but it is done via contracts and procurement 
but passing over the social housing uh, social housing uh, what is called a social housing burden over to private landlords is is functionally unregulated like no one can no one can like look up the contract no one can sort of say okay so uh, so the government is paying this um is paying this outsourcing organization to manage the uh migration of the of nhs of the nhs database of, of the nhs database which was a huge um which was a huge and largely forgotten scandal in the kind of early to mid aughts but this is something which technically has a paper trail it technically has the capacity to investigate it and it technically has the capacity uh to uh to criticize it in through very formal channels but if governments are just saying all the private landlords will do it and then the government is made up of this large number of people who have uh, a financial interest in in private landlords never being regulated and never being challenged, then this is how you get to this situation where children are dying in mold infested houses. Yeah, mm. I think one of not to not to constantly bring it back to Wales, but I th- I think a perfect example of 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 the sort of really weak and kind of embarrassing housing policy that, that can come out of this um, uh, when they were running in the Senate elections last year um, uh, the, the Welsh Labour Party they had they had in a throwaway line in the, the housing section of, of their manifesto had said that they would look into a scheme restricting rent to local housing allowance levels which is the, the way that housing benefit gets uh, calculated. Mm-hmm. I did a story uh, for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism recently I think it was over 90% of of housing in Wales um, was was far too expensive for anybody on on housing benefit to afford. Mm. I think you need to raise housing benefit by two hundred pound. Anyway, they they made this pledge that they would re- you know look into a scheme that would restrict rents. What that scheme actually turned out to be was um, what they call the leasing scheme, um, where essentially local authorities pay landlords um, they pay them grants um, and. Uh, zero interest loans basically to do up their properties and to also agree to lower the rent mm. um so essentially another bribe <laughs> no, putting quotes around bribe. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> choosing my language delicately but yes <laughs> yeah. so you know please please charge a livable rate for the property that you own we will pay you thousands in grants to do so um when i when i did some fois about that i mean they they really struggled to get landlords to sign up because they correctly judged that they could probably make far more by just hiking the rents up on the properties as is mm. um mm. so and obviously you know this this scheme was tailored particularly towards people who were judged to be vulnerable so, so uh, you know basically you know you're asking landlord to house a vulnerable person at a reduced rate by by giving them grants and they're, they're saying no and and obviously the, the vulnerable people at the center of that are what you know who bear the cost so yeah it's it's that kind of sort of um very timid uh policy that doesn't really work but you know costs a lot in sort of bureaucracy and mm-hmm. And, and grants and stuff that that gets born out of that. It's just this this real inability to see the the state as something that can actually take control in in these kinds of situations. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Hussein, I yeah. interrupted I, you earlier, so 
let's go back to let's go back to what your question was well it was kind of i mean it was sort of answered in that and it was also just in relation to and, I, and i'm trying not to kind of like because there's so many goodies in like part two <laughs> but i'm trying not to like give away so many spoilers but it does i i you know what i'll give you like a little i'll give you like a little taster of the goodies because actually it does relate to something that you had mentioned about uh, the idea of like how landlords kind of view very basic things as lifestyle choices. This just came in from the wild as we were recording. Um, uh, and this is like a landlord who's like done like a long thread about like black mold and everything. And the, the, the post that I think really encapsulates so much of this conversation goes as follows. Um, mold may not be the tenant's fault, but drying clothes indoors or boiling lots of water while cooking and never opening windows or taking evening showers are all lifestyle factors that in colder months will increase locked in vapor, condensation and black mold. Heating is only a solution in that turning up will turning it up will keep the water vapor in the air fine as far as it goes but unless it is also ventilated away as soon as property cools the water vapor will turn back into condensation heating's a costly shield not a solution god i feel like this is like a very typical landlord post and like trust me i do have like many of them in part two mm. um but the reason why i thought i'd like read that out was number one i think like lifestyle choice really like uh really jumped out at me but it also really encapsulates something about landlords uh that are like is much more vocally present and again it feeds into the idea of like housing sort of just being seen as like these assets that must like continue going up and the portfolio is the thing that must stay healthy like and kind of the person who lives in that house is sort of like a secondary concern that you don't have to like worry about and in some cases i've read like in landlord forums people being like yeah you know i let like the lessings agency deal with the tenants um my only kind of thing is like i want to just like maintain the value of the property and so like i will only sort of be concerned with like the stuff on the outside mm. um and it is this idea that like and it's incredibly dehumanizing there's no other way to sort of put it um but it is really this idea that like um, and I think this is also where it might be a good way to start talking about where activist groups are sort of coming in. This idea that like, weirdly enough, despite the fact that we're talking about places where people live in houses and flats and so on, um, landlords just like, or the, the logic of a landlord is not one where they sort of like view these places as like places where people live. Um, and it's really, really interesting because like, obviously in the wake of the cost of living crisis, I think there was a piece in the Guardian uh, a couple of days ago where it was just like oh yeah the key to happiness is just to stay warm right or just to kind of like all these types of things or like even just like lots of research to suggest that like if you have a stable house or if you have you if you have like a home that is kind of like your center point and like your source of stability then like you will have generally like a much happier life than if you kind of live in precarious housing conditions like these are very very obvious things um you know, and I imagine like things that if you have a home, like you don't sort of think about very often, but I think Beck, as you've like sort of mentioned in your reporting and in other podcasts and stuff as well, like the reality for most tenants now is that is, is kind of like living in this kind of constant state of precarity and like the idea of the landlords kind of either sort of being oblivious to it or justifying why that precarity is actually a good thing. And I think one of the refreshing things I've seen from like the surge of like uh, housing groups and the fact that those types of uh, demands and concerns are now sort of slight. I, I don't want to like give too much to Michael Gove, but like I think that he's been a bit more receptive than um, other ministers on this issue. Uh, 
And I think because they've been able to articulate the idea very well that like, yeah, houses are places where people live and like, and I, and I guess I'm like, my question then is like, uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you about like the strategies that these, uh, uh, renters unions, uh, tenants unions, renters, uh, activism groups and stuff. How are they sort of articulating the argument and how are they kind of organizing around those, uh, around those arguments and why, why like, and do you kind of feel that it's more, it, it, I guess, is it more effective at the moment than maybe it was uh, a few years ago? I think it was really interesting what you said, actually, about um, how letting agents act as kind of a the means of sort of dealing with the tenant as the landlord sort of just sits and collects the money, because that's definitely something um, that kind of becomes kind of a problem um, with tenant activism, because basically... The, the way we work is we try to uh, get in touch with the landlord themselves as the decision maker. You know, ultimately they they hold the power to make decisions about sort of rent debt forgiveness and, and repairs and things like that. Um, but oftentimes it's difficult to um, the the way that we work with direct action is trying to uh, trying to like engage the the landlord as a human being and, and and sort of pressure them in that way. But obviously, if you've got a a letting agency that kind of sits between you and the tenant, it is very easy for you to just forget that the tenant is a human being. Mm-hmm. And those kind of, a, unless we can get directly to the, to, to the landlord and communicate these problems to the landlord, it's much more difficult um, to, to do that. Cause obviously, you know, they, they, they're not seeing all this, the, the letting agent is just relaying them very sort of uh, dry accounts of what's going on. Um, um, in terms also of, sort of landlords seeing themselves as sort of you know custodians of property and the tenants kind of get in the way of that that is something also that I really observed when I went to the um the landlord investment show there was a guy there um Mm. his name was Josh Riddett um from a company called it was a cryptocurrency uh company and basically the, the the way that they worked was that they manufactured uh crypto mining machines and they they wanted landlords to buy these uh, crypto mining <laughs> machines, put oh, them in their God. properties, and then charge rent to cryptocurrency miners to use their they I, I guess their servers, but the whatever ones run on graphic cards. I crypto is is still kind of <laughs> mystery to me, but yeah. So he was manufacturing all of these uh, uh, these uh, server machines, and essentially, like he started his presentation off with with a slide it was a slideshow presentation and it's like it's kind of dimly lit area of the the conference hall and the, the first slide was uh listing all the different problems that the landlords encounter and i think it was i think it was number two or three on the list that was tenants tenants the problem and and his uh i think his exact words were um uh, human beings are a pain in the ass, and if you can remove them from this this process, all the <laughs> oh better. God. Good grief! And it was uh, yeah, that's it. He, yeah, people should be removed from the renting process where possible. Um, so it, essentially, like it wasn't clear whether he wanted uh, landlords to replace their tenants with the cryptocurrency mining machines, or whether he wanted those machines to be in a spare room in the property. Either way, I thought it was just, it was just so perfect. It's like the business of sort of renting homes to people is ruined by the people that live within them. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah. But I'm sure you've seen this coming up again and again and again, that there is this idea that uh, that buy-to-let housing 
is a uh, is a kind of special class of investment that requires a special uh, special apparatus of protection, um, and the people who make the investment also require this special uh, political and legal apparatus of protection. Mm-hmm. But there is this idea that the value of the the value of the house or the value of the property is this objective independent number, which is something that can be preserved, and the also the amount of uh, the amount of rent that they can skim off the place is an equally objective independent and immutable number um because and it kind of it develops this kind of logic feedback loop which is i get this amount of rent from this property because this is the amount that i get mm-hmm. and not something that they have set that they have set themselves in an entirely arbitrary way um but I think it's I think it's really really getting to the nub of it when you think about how, for example, legally legally and contractually, um, landlords can't take deposit money for uh, the wear and tear of a person living in living in a house. Um, but of course they do because they, they rely do. on people mm. not knowing that that's the case. And precisely, yeah, that's that's very much why they have such a contentious relationship with. Um, with the, the housing charity Shelter, because a lot of what Shelter does, um, you know, it's not a perfect organization and I have my own sort of thoughts about it, but, you know, at the end of the day, it provides a really valuable service in that people can get in touch and get uh, legal advice or advice about, you know, whether the eviction notice they've just been served can actually be enacted. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the time, you know, there are certain things that landlords have to have to adhere to before they can issue you with a section to anyone, which is the, the no fault eviction notice, which is, you know, when your landlord just wants to sell up or something, you know, there are things that they need to do, things they need to provide things like, you know, an energy certificate and stuff like that, gas safety um, certificate and things like that. You know, if they don't provide those things, then, you know, there's a lot of cases there are, there are evictions that are just not legally valid to carry out but you know if a tenant doesn't know that then they don't know that they'll Mm. just move out and it's the same with like disrepair claims you know if you've got shelter telling people like oh you can actually report this to your local authority and the local authority you know Mm. will come and inspect the property and potentially they could you know do a a a repair order against the landlord you know require them to to carry out repairs or you know require them to put the tenant up in in a different uh property while repairs are getting done if you know the, the disrepair is that bad you know the, the system kind of relies on tenants not really knowing that they can do those things like a lot of mm-hmm. you know p- people we come into contact with in um acorn like a lot of the time people just in, are in no way aware of what tiny you know sh- scraps of rights that they do have and 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 that's why you know sort of groups like Acorn and, and charities like Shelter and stuff, they, they're quite unpopular in these spaces because mm. it does rely on that. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I think that that's, I think that's, that's really, really important. And I think that's a really good lead in to what I wanted to talk to you about, which was about, uh, about your work, um, your work with um, tenants unions, um, the kinds of stuff, uh, the kinds of stuff you'll be doing going forward. And also, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the kind of the pros and cons of uh, digital activism and um, activism and organizing through 
uh, through social media. So if you could just, yeah, if you could just kind of give us a sort of overview of kind of sort of what's, 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 co- what's coming next? What is the, what is like the, what are the, what are the big sort of big priorities in terms of, um, in terms of this organization work for, for, for a kickoff? Okay, so um, I organize with a group called ACORN, um, which is, it's an international organization. So there's like, there's branches of ACORN in places like Peru, for example, or like, you know, in Canada, in in the States, but also in the UK. Um, Here we've got a couple of main tenant uh, tenant union organizations. So we've got ACORN um, in, in Scotland, it's living rent. And then you've got the London Renters Union as well. How these things work um, is that we're very much geared towards direct action. So we will signpost people to things like shelter where it's like legal issues or like, you know, make it, you know, checking that an eviction is legal and, and, and things like that. But the, the main way that we work is exactly how you'd expect kind of a trade union to work. Um, mm-hmm. So... If you say have disrepair at your property and your landlord doesn't want to fix it or they, they decide to hike your rent, you come to us, we do um, an assessment. We find a little bit out about sort of your your experience renting from that person. And then we sort of make a plan on how we can go about basically using direct action to pressure the, the letting agent and the landlord into changing their behavior and, and actually providing you with a with a safe and comfortable home that you can afford to live in it's basically about about helping people to see that there is the option to say no when something you know when when these things happen because you can't you can't you can't just say no you can you know these as you as you say these things things like rent prices are not are not just what the cost of of renting the property is they are just set by an individual person who's making an individual choice to to hike that rent and you know there there's there's no law that says that that they have to receive that money mm-hmm. you know and and you can't you can't say no how we how we normally work is organize little direct actions there's there's a bunch of different tactics we employ um and you know at, at one end it can be like picketing um, outside a letting agency, or it can be things like community outreach where we'll uh, knock doors and basically just, you know, sort of let people know about the case that's going on. And, you know, you, them, the thing with landlords is they might own, you know, your la- landlord will likely own a bunch of properties in the area in which you live. And if we can, you know, speak to people, we might find more people who are renting from mm-hmm. that same person and having that same problem and you know join you up together and and then you, you know in the same way as the trade union works the more sort of tenants of the same landlords that that we are aware of and can map out the more chance we have of being able to get you like you know a, a decent sort of settlement um we also do you know research about the area you know what, what are the market rents and stuff as i as i mentioned before i'm i'm looking after a case um where a a sort of disabled run uh, cafe that's sort of like it's a community interest organization so it's like it's run purely for sort of community benefit and things and their landlord has just put their rent up uh basically said if you if you can't sort of increase the amount you pay by about 50 percent we'll sort of close you down by christmas and and sort of what we did is like look at the 
the rents being charged for similar properties in the area and they're far, far less mm. than what the landlord wants. It's things like that. It's getting to know your area, getting to like um, speaking to people and joining people up and actually, yeah, you know, sort of bringing that sense of community back. Mm. Um, in terms of online activism, as you mentioned, we do use um, social media and it can be useful in some ways for doing direct action in the sense that it's it's more of a, a kind of a recruiting tool. We you know it's a good way to find people who are interested in getting involved. And we use um, if say there's you know a letting agent that has a social media page, we can we can kind of make things quite annoying for them by sort of clogging up that that uh, letting agent <laughs> sort of social media mm-hmm. and things like that. We we do things like uh, review tanking where we'll tank someone's letting agents google reviews or whatever um that can can also you know cause them quite a bit of annoyance um basically we just sort of clog it up with one star reviews asking them to to negotiate with us on a case but what i will say is that always always pales in comparison to in-person real life organizing it doesn't make you feel good in the same way as being in a room full of people will. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that that I think a lot about because I think people get sort of trapped in the sleep of, you know, oh, social media is where people are. And, you know, if you can if you can just post enough, people will see your posts and they, they'll be convinced of, of of the case that you're making. And, mm-hmm. you know, they can... And, and I think to a certain extent, you know, there are people, you know who do find like a political community online and and do find you know do access sort of information they might not otherwise have encountered and it might sort of change their politics a little bit but i think there's only so much that that is going to do it might uh make you come around to the idea of of political organizing and make you come around Mm. to certain principles um politically but the real, the real stuff will always be going to a meeting, talking to other people, formulating a plan, doing stuff in person. Um, you know, we had a launch for, um, again, the the case that I'm looking after, we had a launch for the campaign with that. And it was just a, a room full of people all like sharing free food and having a chat. Mm. And, you know, there were people, there are people at events like that who have never done anything like that before they you know with the with the cafe you know they've just they've used the cafe and they like the cafe so they come along to you know this event that says save the cafe but then you also get people they who are then talking to you about tenant organizing you might learn Mm. that you might share a landlord and you know you get that opportunity and it's also you know we live in a really lonely society at the moment and i hate mm. to do the whole we live in a society but <laughs> we, we are really isolated i feel it all the time it's really you know particularly like you know at the moment um with my working circumstances i you know i work two jobs i'm a freelance reporter and i also work at like a shop doing like cashier stuff and it's exhausting because you come home and you you do come on from one job and you do another job and it's it can just feel very much like you're going through the motions and to be yeah. able to have something in your life that you're doing that is just interacting with very sweet, very good people who genuinely want to see positive change in the world. 
that is that is not something you're going to get from quote tweet arguing on Twitter. You just you're just never going <laughs> to yeah. feel that like mm. pure hope that you get from and and it, and not to be sort of too misty eyed about it, but you genuinely there is no time that I feel sort of more optimistic about just generally the way things are than go into a direct action. I went to a, a UCU picket line in uh, in Cardiff uh, mm. last week and it was, uh, is it last week or this week? I don't know where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I think it was last week. Um, and it was wonderful because, you know, you're, you're there on the picket line, there's a, there's a rally, students are coming and bringing free food to the lecturers on strike. You've got guys in vans beeping in support going past. It makes you feel wonderful and you, you're never going to get that feeling and you're never going to sort of produce, you're never going to see the change that you want to see if, you, if you're if you just, you know, getting into arguments on Twitter or, or, or whatever. It's just, it's just not the same. Mm. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, this is interesting because what I was, at, what, I, what I also wanted to hear a bit more from me about, um, mm. I've realized we're, we're running very close to time. And so we're going to have to tell our grim landlord stories in uh, the next episode. So uh <laughs> do do watch out for that um but what i'm what i think i'm interested in is the uh, is the argument for uh, for social media organizing is that it incorporates people who are who are shut out of traditional organization um and there's never there's never anything that comes up in this argument that for me that doesn't sound like it could be resolved with greater um, a greater interest in and a greater commitment towards um, accessibility issues of all descriptions, not just for people with disabilities, but people with children, people who do shift work, people who whose first language isn't English, people who um, people who don't have a kind who don't have, sort of have a kind of high sort of reading and kind of vocal expression level, um, so find it difficult to kind of advocate for themselves. I don't really see what extra accessibility work is being done in online spaces that could not be done in real world spaces. But I wondered if you had any, any kind of further thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I think the main thing with that, and I, I guess this is my personal thing is that I just think that these are things that are solvable just by talking to people who are in, who are in the, I mean, with Acorn Cardiff, we've got plenty of people who are disabled and, and neurodivergent and have all kinds of different needs and stuff. And all that takes is just saying that you have those needs. And, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not denying at all that, you know, there's probably plenty of people in, in sort of trade union organizing or rent or renters organizing or sort of any kind of political organizing space that that, you know, there'll always be people who might be bad at responding th- to those kinds of things. But I guess that I really think that that sort of IRL uh, organizing will provide a benefit to people who are more shut out. Mm. The, 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 people who are more sort of traditionally shut out will always experience more of a benefit of being in the same room with a bunch of people that want to help mm. Um, mm. than being online. Because I think if you're already shut out, then if you're relying on online activism entirely, it's only going to kind of, silo you off further and i think like we we run our meetings in acorn we always do them hybrid so we have in-person meetings we try to bring like free food and, and stuff 
along so that you know if you're coming from work and you're exhausted you know you can you can eat at the meeting mm. um and not have to worry about going home and, and prepping food and stuff but we always do them hybrid so that if, if you're not able to get to the venue and stuff you can just join sort of through a zoom call and, yeah. and still you know be able to interact with people in that way and i think mm. you know there's always going to be room for improvement with this stuff, particularly because, you know, everyone's doing it kind of with their own time with, you know, nobody gets, you know, financially rewarded yeah. for it. It's all volunteer stuff. So there's always going to be room for improvement just by dint of that fact. But like you've, I think, I think if you, if you're a left wing person and you, and you want to, you want to build a world that's kind of inclusive in that way, you have to kind of believe that people will always want to do better. Mm-hmm. And I think this assumption that that you can't ask for these for these adjustments or ask for these um yeah, ask for these adjustments because they're gonna be denied to you. I think I think you got kind of gotta you've got to have that I mean fair if if someone sort of knocks you back when you're asking for for these adjustments to be made, then fair enough. But I think you kind of have to to assume that there's good in people and yeah. that they they want to include you and i think you know i again i can only speak for the for the group that i'm involved in like that that's always kind of the key you know we have people from very very different um walks of life you know we've got like a history lecturer that went to oxbridge and then we've got people who are unemployed or we've got people who are disabled and we've got trans people we've got cis people we've got non-binary people so the the thing again, it's that it's that really cliched thing of like there's always more that unites you than divides you, and if you've all got very one clear sort of principle in mind and, and one clear sort of vision of the kind of world that you want to build, mm. then that inclusivity is kind of going to blossom from there because yeah. you want as many people as possible joining with you, and. So, and so you want them to feel comfortable. Yeah. I know I've kind of rambled on no, a little no, no, bit. No, there, no, 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 no. Everything, because everything you, everything you say, I completely agree with. I was just, I was just wondering mm. if there was sort of something about this, about this kind of work, which I was kind of missing in my own conception of it, because my feeling has always been that in-person organization as much as, as, as possible and reasonable is always going to be better because just even like in part of because in terms of accessibility issues if you look at the 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 shape of uh, of the way that people di- the way that people discuss things online and this isn't a c- case of you know oh people are not civilly civil to each other on twitter no no that's not what i mean at all but the assumption going in is always this assumption of hostility and always this assumption mm. of um of someone not taking you and your needs seriously and it's a Mm. kind of and it's a kind of dual depersonalization so you're not thinking of the person who's on the other end of your request as a person and you're also not giving them the credit for thinking of you as a person and i think that's Mm. like that's what's behind of the kind of the bullishness of the kind of the well i can't do this and i can't do that so what's being made what's being done to make sure that i can do this yeah, and then it makes you feel worse because then you're living in a world where you're sort of assuming that nobody wants you and, and assuming that you're sort of by default uninvited. Mm-hmm. And while that might be true of sort of the way that lots of structures in society are, I think you kind of, 
you kind of have to assume that that's not the way that yeah. these organizing spaces are going to work because the point of these organizing um groups is to change those structures and so you know the, the vision of the world that that comes with those organizing groups is going to be by default kind of different to to the way things are set up in sort of formal society as it is anyway um again certainly that's that's sort of our view in in our little group is is we want everyone to to feel welcome and 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 i i think we do a good job of, of making sure that's the case yeah um, fantastic yeah mm. good well, like I, I imagine, um, I mean, all the other sort of follow-ups I have uh, will actually be suited for the next episode where we kind of mm. go into the psyche of landlord posting and mm. the kind of uh, how how they rationalized uh, doing what they do. Uh, there is definitely some, uh, if you like the little taster I gave, then there are definitely some little treats uh, in store for the bonus episode. So do uh, stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, uh, Becca, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to uh, follow your work in the run-up to our bonus episode, how can they do that? Okay, I'm on Twitter at Wilkes Becker. So that's W-I-L-K-S-B-E-C-C-A. Um, yeah, and if you want to uh, get involved with ACORN, I would strongly suggest you do because I'm biased. Um, it's acorntheunion.org.uk forward slash, forward slash join and they're on Twitter as well. And um, so you can follow all the various campaigns they do there. Um, and obviously if you're in London, it's... Uh, uh, London Renters Union and in Scotland is Living Rent. Cool. We'll add all links to all of those in the show notes mm-hmm. uh, so that will make it easier for uh, you to, if you want to get involved in that. Um, as mentioned, we have a Patreon uh, with bonus content, including the one, including part two of this, which will come out uh, next week. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast, five bucks a month. It helps us, supports us to do the show. Um, and it allows us to uh, yeah to do what we do. Um, you can follow me at H Kazmani wherever you do social media. I guess Phoebe, do you want to plug anything before we close out? Uh, yeah, if you don't listen to me and Milo Edwards' Seinfeld podcast, that is Masters of Our Domain, and that can be followed at, at Masters of Pod on Twitter. Also, I am uh, starting a Substack, so uh, more details on that to follow. That's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm excited uh, for that. Uh, I might uh, revive mine. <laughs> I might revive mine. I'm still thinking about it. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be behaving yeah. like it. This is something which has been imposed on me and not something that I've decided to do. So just keep yeah, I've also that. been thinking about doing a sub stack, and I'm also the the kind of internal noises. Yeah, it's so it's so cringe to self publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what I'm saying. Um, the show is produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth. You can also listen to Kill James Bond. Uh, it's a very good podcast. Uh, I think that's it for us. So until next time, we'll catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye.